This podcast contains strong language and adult themes, including discussion of suicide and suicidal thoughts. Uh, yeah, let me just look at my calendar there. It's day 28 for me on the 25th of January. So if we count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 26, 27, 28, now we'll be good. It'll be about where I'm at now, just during it, which is very sane. It's a myth that women are crazy when they have their cycle. It's beforehand. Yeah. You're actually at your sanest during, really. Like, that's when you get a lot of shit done. Like, you're quite organised. <laughs> Take note. <laughs> cool. I'll wait for that email from you, and then I'll make some bookings. Yeah. Lovely. All right. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Adam. Bye. Out of My Mind is a podcast about mental health produced for stuff by me, Adam Dudding. In each episode, one person talks about their life and about the view from inside their head. Today, Crossing the Lines, featuring Hannah Smith. Hannah's a mother of two in her mid-30s who lives in a small town in the South Island. But actually, Hannah isn't her real name, and her daughter's names have been changed as well. Hannah wanted to reduce the chances of her girls stumbling across this podcast once they're old enough to go online. I've come to realise that there's been a close connection between my cycle and my mental health. You know, I'm like clockwork. My cycle arrives on time, lasts for a certain amount of days. I have two weeks of the month where I feel like superwoman and those are the weeks where I will nail the job interview that no matter what, Charlotte and Isla are doing, I can generally hold myself together and respond lovingly towards them. I get towards the middle of my cycle where I ovulate and I'm feeling affectionate and loving and randy with my partner and it's great because seems to coincide with where he's at too. Then pretty much the next day I'm on the descent. You know, I ovulate and then I come down and I go down, down, down. Days 19, 20, 21 are the days where I have considered taking my life, where I have decided that I don't have any true friends, where I think it's time to start making plans of ending my relationship. The times where I beat myself up for being a shitty parent and the times where I will cross lines that I would never think I would cross otherwise. I grew up in a coastal town. I remember a surfing friend describing to me, you know, getting chucked off his board and going under and being under the water and wanting to just stay down there and not come back up again. It was quieter, it was simpler. I could really relate to that. Uh, So I've struggled with anxiety and depression most of my life. I also identify as an alcoholic in recovery. I haven't drank in 11 years. I would say that I was quite eccentric as a girl. Maybe I was seen as a bit difficult or dramatic because I was always quite keen to debate things or to know deeper meanings behind things. I think I had a connection with spirituality from a young age outside of my family who were non-religious. 
My mother raised me pretty much on her own. And because she worked so hard to give me the kind of life that she really aspired for me to have, I think she also liked to let her hair down, you know. I was always in the car on a Friday night with a plate of food on my lap, heading to some barbecue. And sometimes we'd come home and that would be fine and nothing much happened. But other times we were there too late, you know, and it went on too long. My dad was in and out of my life, which brought uncertainty. And when he was in my life, he was still practicing an alcoholic lifestyle. So sometimes the party was brought home to us. I think some of the uncertainty that I experienced in my childhood around some of these um, situations meant that I was anxious and unsure. You know, drinking is usually a sign that things aren't okay deep down. And that showed itself for the first time really when I, along with most of the town, attended the wake of a well-loved community member. I got really wasted and embarrassed myself and everybody and my family and woke up the next day terribly remorseful and it was the first time that I had drunk alcoholically. I would have been about 12. So my experiences with mental health staff really started to take shape from my preteen years. I felt uneasy. I just felt uneasy. I'd actually been pregnant before within a committed relationship. The first pregnancy actually turned out to be ectopic, a fertilised egg which has lodged itself in the fallopian tube and begun to grow. And so I found that out when my fallopian tube burst and endangered my life. That whole year following that ectopic pregnancy was hell on earth, my hormones being completely out of whack. I just had such uncontrollable anger and just these outbursts of pain, you know, deep psychological pain. It looked like me completely out of control, smashing things, but I was just hurting and took that out on my partner and our relationship really suffered as a result. About a year later, we fell pregnant again, and that was celebrated and wanted. That's Charlotte, my oldest daughter. I was never someone who really wanted to have children, but I wasn't someone who didn't want to have children either. I was surprised at how much of a natural mother I felt. I remember that feeling of, like, almost having met her before somehow, like I knew this little being in front of me and she was of me and blew me away and I delighted in all those special moments that come with being a mum for the first time. But we were still really struggling as a couple. We had external factors that were riding against us, financial stuff, wider family issues and sadly, we made it a year into Charlotte's life and then made the decision to separate. I had been a solo mum for about a year and Charlotte was around two when... (laughs) 
I was hanging out with him all night and near the end where he was preparing to leave to go home, I just sort of blurted it out that I was really worried about the fact that I was three days late but I would be taking a test the next day and I would of course let him know the results which would of course be negative and we could all breathe a sigh of relief and I was thinking about potentially leaving things there with this man because I was starting to feel a bit attached and that was something he had stated clearly he wasn't interested in having a committed relationship. So the next day I took the test and yeah, the floor sort of gave out from underneath me when I saw that second line beginning to creep away over the screen and I knew that I was pregnant with this baby that we'd created together outside of a relationship and what was just meant to be a bit of fun had now all of a sudden taken on huge meaning. My knees were knocking together like I felt almost like giggling hysterically. I think I probably did. Tell me about what you're holding. Just describe it and what it is. It's a little purse that I was given in childhood. It kind of speaks to my character, actually, because it's quirky and eccentric and old-fashioned, and that's the kind of girl I was. Collected strange things and liked stuff from the olden times. I chose it to house the wee crystal that I've got, and I do use crystals a lot just to ground me and to stabilise things. I would take crystals along with me to high school examinations and put them on the desk. This one is a moonstone and it is very much linked with femininity and the moon and cycles and the energy of a woman and motherhood especially. It's actually a crystal that doulas or midwives that are that way inclined will recommend during childbirth. That pregnancy was really difficult because we were still unsure of and negotiating whether or not we would be together and if we were, then what that would look like. So there were days that I struggled and towards the end of the pregnancy there was one particular night where I really struggled and it was reminiscent of those darker days before I was pregnant, where I would go to these depths of not even wanting to be here anymore. The next day I woke up feeling very differently. I experienced a lot of shame around having had those feelings. It was the first time I'd had those feelings while being responsible for another life. Near the end of the pregnancy, I had my final scan and it showed that Isla's weight was not going up as it should have been. Two weeks before she was due, we were told that I would need to have an induction. Suddenly I was on my way back to the hospital and things were happening really hard and fast. We arrived at the hospital and within an hour and 20 minutes of active labour, Isla arrived. So I arrived home with my new baby and my new partner to this whole new situation 
we were really fortunate in that my partner was able to take two months off work. So we had this time in which we could enjoy getting to know one another and getting to know this new baby. And of course, Charlotte was in the mix as well, getting used to having a new step parent and a new sister. Probably in the first week, we arranged for a family shoot, which in some ways felt slightly bizarre because we were so fresh as a family. But something I remember from that day is just how natural it actually felt. It resulted in some really beautiful photos that captured such potential for us. Later on, you know, when the wheels began to fall off and I was really struggling and questioning everything, I'd look at those photos and it would be this bittersweet feeling. I remember the first few weeks where he was back at work and I was at home holding down my end of the bargain and thinking, yeah, I I can do this. This is easy. Like, you know, this wasn't as bad as what I'd heard with two kids at home. Felt like I was coping all right. And we were trying to have Charlotte out of nappies. I remember thinking, I've got this, you know, look, she's running around with no pants on and she's using the potty and this is great. I've got the baby down. She's sleeping. My gosh, you know, I've got five minutes. I can have a cup of tea. And then all hell breaks loose. Like Charlotte comes down the stairs screaming. She's got poo all down her leg. She's covered in it. She's got it in her hair. I don't even know how. Isla wakes up screaming. She needs me, but there's poo everywhere. I'm trying to breastfeed. Actually, I did breastfeed Isla while I was wiping poos out of my other daughter's hair. It was hilarious in one sense, but those situations just became more and more frequent. Charlotte would need me and Isla would need me and I would need me and there's only one of me, so it just wouldn't work. It was also incredibly hot. The temperature would just soar and soar and soar. We lived near some water and I'd be thinking, I've got to get us down to the water, we've got to cool off. But then all my problem-solving skills were just out the window. I'd go, OK, I'm going to wait till Isla's woken up. I'm going to have the bag packed. We're going to go in the car down to the river because it's too hot to walk down. But then Isla would wake up after 20 minutes, so I'd be thinking, right, that's not long enough, so now I need to put her in the pram. Okay, we'll go in the pram down to the water. But then that means Charlotte would have to walk, and it's too hot for Charlotte to walk. And I don't have a double pram. I can't. I can't do this. I would just be thrown by someone falling asleep, someone waking up, someone not having slept long enough, someone needing the toilet, someone having an accident. I just felt I couldn't make a decision to save myself. It felt like the day was just insurmountable. And the whole time there was this building being constructed opposite our house and it was this constant drilling and this constant noise and the ground being shaken and it would wake Isla up. I just felt like I was starting to lose my mind a little, which I was. I'm someone who swears a lot. Can you swear? Oh, yeah. Good, because <laughs> I'll start doing that as yeah. we get heavier. <laughs> so it was, it was just... As the days wore on, I found myself coping less and less. And the next thing I noticed, which was really scary, was that I started to feel more and more ambivalent towards Isla. 
I loved her and would do anything for her, but I was more comfortable with her at a distance. If someone wanted to hold her, I'd be more than happy for them to take her off my hands. There was a point there where her crying out for me, instead of it just being a mere annoyance, I would start to really fear it. I would hear her crying and my heart would start to beat faster. My hands would start to sweat. I'd start to feel anxious and I would find a million stupid little things to do before I would go and get her. And I would be saying in my mind, oh, it's really important that I finish this pile of washing because then I can move it off the couch where I need to sit down with her to breastfeed. Oh, you know, I just need to finish typing this text. It's really important that I answer the Plunkett nurse and get that appointment sorted. And that's more important than going and picking her up right now. I felt angry a lot of the time at myself for not coping, at people around me for not seeing that I wasn't coping. Worst of all, I started to take out my frustrations on Charlotte, you know, my firstborn who previous to this I'd had such a wonderful, close relationship with where I never really lost my temper and I felt like I could handle all the little challenges that she threw my way. She started up this habit of screaming and the screaming was just so triggering to me. It would be like flipping a switch. I'd be okay one minute, well okay-ish, and then she'd start the screaming up and I'd just be in a full-blown rage and screaming at her to stop screaming, which doesn't make any sense. Not only was she screaming, but she was doing pretty typical things like going up to the baby and hitting her on the head, doing that repeatedly. I would get to the point where I would, you know, wrench her away from Isla in a really rough manner. Or a couple of times, without even thinking at all, I would, with an open hand, hit her across the shoulder or the torso instantly regretting it and instantly seeing the irony there and how is she meant to do better when I'm not showing her what that looks like. It's really distressing to talk about, you know, it's a lot's changed in the parenting climate here in New Zealand so that this is really taboo stuff. It's hard to talk about without fear of judgment, I guess. But I don't know a parent that I've spoken to openly about this who hasn't been there at least once. And it just speaks volumes about how much I was struggling because none of this was okay. You know, I wasn't sitting there going, yeah, but she's really naughty, so it's okay. That's not my parenting values or beliefs. I would go to bed beating myself up internally, thinking of the ways I'd let my girls down. And I was all too well aware of the times that I had lashed out at Charlotte and scared her or hurt her and seen her little face looking at me like, who are you? And it was just playing on my mind every night, round and round and round. And I was having like 3 a.m. panic attacks. I struggled so hard with those breastfeeds early in the morning where I was just dreading, absolutely fucking dreading the day before me. I was saying to myself, don't worry, tomorrow will be better because how could it get any worse? But then it did. 
I was starting to do really dangerous stuff around the house. Mm. It's like my brain had just turned to butter. I went to pick my partner up one day. His car was parked directly behind mine. I got the kids in the car, slammed the car into reverse and pull out straight into his car and smash the whole front of it. There was a time where I backed out again and just smashed into the electrical box outside our house and caused the power to fritz out into the whole street. I was doing crazy things like I took the chicken out of the freezer with the intention to defrost it on top of the element stovetop and then, like in a trance, just turned the element on high and left it there. So the plastic tray was melted through and the chicken actually like steam cooked inside the plastic. Then there were times where in a complete rage, I would just snap and break things. I seemed to always be in the kitchen when I had these complete meltdowns. I'd be doing okay, doing okay, dealing with things. And then one more thing would happen, and next thing I'm smashing the oven top with the knife block, or just throwing a glass against the wall. Getting Charlotte to preschool became a real struggle. I'd be aggressively shoving her into a car seat and telling her to shut up and stop screaming and to listen to me and just just to get her to preschool and then I'd be leaving her there in tears and feeling like the worst mother in the world as I drove away. I remember thinking that these girls would be better off without you as their mother and then that thought kind of out of nowhere just popped into my head. You could just drive into oncoming traffic and that would solve this or it would at least change this but I couldn't do something like that. After having that experience, I started to actually research into postnatal depression. I had this niggling feeling that, well, this was mental health stuff. And I actually came across a documentary, When the Bow Breaks, on Netflix. The documentary was really dark, really affected me watching that and how serious this can be. I wanted to see a doctor and I wanted to reach out to my counsellor that I had had throughout my pregnancy but had stopped seeing while Isla was so small. But I also wanted to call a herbalist who knew what they were doing around hormonal health. I was quite interested in that. And so these phone calls all sort of started to take place but unfortunately, only a day or two later, I woke up one morning feeling worse than I had on any other day because I felt nothing at all. I just stared blankly at a wall for the first part of that morning until Charlotte wandered into the bedroom and Isla had woken up and it all sort of began it felt like the day had sort of began without me really being a part of it because of the way I was feeling just so disconnected from everything. I think because of the way I was behaving, that triggered Charlotte to start the screaming up that she'd been doing. And instead of feeling immediately angry, 
I just felt so numb to that screaming. I think I was breastfeeding Isla at the time and it was that feeling of being like underwater, like I was just drowning. I was almost okay with that. There was a non-feeling of I didn't care about their needs. I didn't care that she was screaming. I didn't care that Isla was breastfeeding. I didn't care about anything anymore until all of a sudden something came over me and I just snapped completely and and then all that mattered to me was to stop that screaming and what I did next you know I'm not comfortable with going into the details but what happened scared Charlotte and it's something that I'm going to have to work through and process You know, I don't know how going into the details would serve what I'm trying to do through relating this experience, which is to bring a voice to the struggle and to the experience of postnatal depression and postnatal psychosis. I um, scared the shit out of myself, but at the same time, I don't really feel as though I was myself. I felt like I was a robot or something. I called her father and he dropped everything when he heard the tone in my voice. He did get there as fast as possible, but by then, again, it's like a switch was flipped. I'd gone from feeling nothing to snapping and not being able to tolerate the sound of the screaming any longer, then feeling quite robotic around the actions I took to try and stop that screaming. And then on the other side of that, I flew into this manic state. I was suddenly all about what was I gonna do about everything. I was going to make sure Charlotte was looked after by somebody else, that was her father. Then I was going to get to the bottom of that fucking noise that was literally driving me mental, that constant pounding from the building being erected opposite me. So I got on the phone to the people responsible and I ranted and I raved and I called the landlord and I told them this is unacceptable and you know how was I expected to cope and why weren't we told anything about this building being erected and when the fuck was it going to end and she realized that there was something more going on so she actually got hold of my partner and I don't know she may have called another agency it's like I was all alone in this and then suddenly the flood banks burst and I was manically screaming from the rooftop that I needed help. And all these people were involved, and that included me also, embarrassingly, sadly, posting on social media that I needed help. And did anyone else's kids scream so much that it triggered them to cross lines and, what can I do? I need help. As a result of me posting that message, the police were called by other concerned parents, I guess, which it's hard to know how I feel about that. The whole situation was certainly serious, but it ramped up the anxiety and the mania and the whole energy of the situation, opening the door to the police standing there. 
All I could do there was tell the police that I had already reached out to my therapist and had an appointment and I suspected postnatal depression and I assured them that I would be seeing a doctor. And they were pretty happy with that. By now, Charlotte had actually left with her father once he knew that a neighbour was with me and Isla and this neighbour was holding Isla and talking to me about what had been going on. So that was the worst day, the day where everything fell apart and in the weeks that followed, support services kicked in. I was given this psychiatric assessment and I was diagnosed with severe postnatal depression and this situation was bad enough that it warranted me being offered a bed in a psychiatric ward. But unfortunately, or possibly fortunately, I never made it to that unit because there was no space. It's incredibly under-resourced. But I was offered a wraparound service where... There's different services that work together to support me. Part of my problem was that I was holding on with white knuckles. How could I trust anyone when I didn't even trust myself? That whole part of a mother that would do anything for their child to make sure they don't suffer in any way was just ramped up a millionfold because I had to live with the fact that I'd caused harm to her and that on one hand, it would be best if we had some space and she was with someone else. But I was in some kind of bind where I just couldn't let go of her. I couldn't just hand her over. I was given a support worker to come on in a few times a week to help me manage the household, to do the housework, and just to sit with the baby while I had a shower. But I felt like such a failure that I needed her because of that damned voice going round and round in my head telling me, why can't you do this? Plenty of other mothers have two children and manage the housework, you know? Plenty of other mothers have got two children or more and they manage to defrost chicken without burning down the house or back out of the driveway without knocking out the power to half the street, you know? Or sure, they get really angry at their kids, but they don't lash out at them. But that's Partly it's a lie that I'm telling myself because, yeah, we're not all coping. Everybody, every parent, every mother has days where they're not coping. I was prescribed some antipsychotic drugs, which I found really helpful. It was described to me by the psych nurse as... This will give you some space from the reoccurring thoughts, the rumination, the beating yourself up internally. The drugs gave me some space and I felt like I was wrapped in a cloud and just nicely distant from it all. But, you know, I had to return to reality. I was also offered antidepressants that are safe for women who are breastfeeding. I have used antidepressants in the past and I've found them really helpful and effective. But I also am aware it's not a short-term thing and because I was breastfeeding, I just wasn't 100% okay with that. And once making that decision, I was pretty much dropped out of the psychiatric system. But I continued to receive support services. I had therapy back in place and I worked with a herbalist
I hadn't had my cycle back from having had Isla and this made me feel like I was adrift, not knowing where I was at hormonally. I attended a holistic fair and received some alternative healing treatments based on the premise of clearing blockages of energy and only a week after having had those treatments, my cycle began and it was really close to a new moon. I felt like I had an anchor and I knew where I was at and it was really relieving. The hormonal dip that I experienced during that year that I recovered from an ectopic pregnancy was very similar to the way I was experiencing life following Isla. The hormonal balance there or imbalance was really key. I started researching more and more the connection between women's health when it comes to their menstruation, the childbirth, becoming a mum, and sort of more spiritual paradigms around this. I feel like, you know, I use this knowledge every day to just respect the fact that as a woman I'm cyclic in nature and to pay attention to this. I have to do it for the benefit of my kids. I have to pay attention to what's happening on those three days out of every month for their well-being, not just my own, for my relationship, for my friendships, for all those roles that I play. I'll do my best to not overload myself on those days, to organise some play dates for my oldest daughter especially, to run a bath and go to bed early and eat right. When I do resource myself on those three days, then the fallout is just so much more limited. Lastly, a practice that I found immensely helpful was ecstatic dance. It's described as a moving meditation. It's an opportunity to get out of your head and into your body. This has been a really important part of my mental health maintenance program because I have a chance to work things out on the dance floor. In the church hall on the wall, there's a plaque saying, this hall was erected in 1800 and something by some woman and there shall be no dancing in this hall. So this is the hall where we gather each Friday night to dance. Tony sets up the sound system, which is massive, and it's got flashing lights. We all start to drift in. Everyone's wearing yoga gear or swirly skirts or singlets or shorts. We end up all on the floor stretching our bodies as the beat begins. Our eyes are closed and I'm starting to feel like this is it. I'm right where I'm meant to be. I'm in a place where I can be myself, where I don't have all the pressures that are usually there in life, in day-to-day life, in parenting life, crushing me. I can start to be free as I move to the music and to the beat. The rules around ecstatic dance is there is absolutely no rules. So for some people they might just be swaying to the beat, some people could be climbing the walls, some people could be jumping up and down and screaming on the spot. Myself, you know, I try to just let out whatever's going on for me that week. 
It lasts for about an hour and a half of good, solid, hard, sweaty, full-bodied, raving it out dance. I'm sweaty, I'm red-faced, I'm aching all over, I'm absolutely exhausted. Most of all, I'm feeling just this simple joy, this happiness, this freedom. Thanks for listening to Out of My Mind. If you want to subscribe to the full series or learn more about the people I've interviewed, check out stuff.co.nz slash outofmymind. If this episode has brought up any difficult thoughts or feelings for you, the website has helpline numbers and links to mental health resources. And if you feel like you need help right now, you can make a free call or text to 1737, where you can talk with the counsellor and get some immediate support. Out of My Mind was made for stuff by me, Adam Dudding. It was supported by a Like Minds, Like Mind grant from the Mental Health Foundation. Engineering by Alex Chalkoff at Department of Post, music by Audio Network. My editorial advisor was Eugene Bingham, and special thanks also to Tammy Allen and Katrina Ferguson. Full credits on the website, and if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review with lots of stars. It helps new listeners find us. See ya.